Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good, Anne. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. I know. We get to see each other doing these podcasts now. Uh, So we have a number of uh, very interesting topics today. Uh, We're going to start out talking about father support, and I know that we want to be inclusive in language when we're talking about fathers. And I'm, even though the article I'm going to discuss really has father in the title, um, we can talk, I'm going to probably use the term partners quite a bit because it really does pertain to partners as well. The title of the article that I want to discuss is Father Support for Breastfeeding Mothers Who Plan to Utilize Childcare, a Qualitative Look at Mother's Perspectives. And this was published by Alexandra Lundquist, Brent McBride, Sharon Donovan, and Marie uh, uh, Wallisak. This was done through University of Illinois in Champaign. And the, the study basically interviewed mothers who were in the central Illinois region. So they start by talking about how Mothers really who are back to work are at high risk for weaning early for another number of reasons. And that as of 2019, about 60% of new mothers return to a paid job in the United States. And really a large portion of those mothers rely on non-parental childcare, so like childcare centers or in-home daycares. And on average, these children are spending about 30 hours a week in daycare. And there are a lot of reasons why these mothers wean early. So for example, studies have shown that um, they're they're just basically less likely to initiate breastfeeding, any breastfeeding, and certainly less likely to exclusively breastfeed um, in the first six months if they know that they're going to be working outside the home. And that childcare itself is considered to be a risk factor for early weaning based on studies. They also um, have found that people who need to pump for reasons that are not like their own sort of doing. In other words, there's an external reason that they can't control uh, is associated with earlier weaning. So for example, someone who decides to exclusively breastfeed because they find it more convenient, uh, they have less pain, uh, whatever reason that is, they're more likely to exclusively pump than those who exclusively pump for these other reasons. So then uh, the authors kind of talked about this because then they they wondered whether father support would help to ameliorate some of these effects on early weaning and that there is some evidence of support that support interventions that target co-parenting relationships find that there's increased breastfeeding duration when the father helps with breastfeeding and the mother is content with that level of support. So the things that the father's thing may be helpful may not be what the mother really wants, but um, any, in any event, it does seem to help. And uh, so again, these studies are talking about fathers and mothers just based on how the subjects identify themselves. Um, this study, again, is a qualitative uh, study. So they interviewed 25 first-time moms in central Illinois who intended to breastfeed were planning to return to work outside the home as a paid job, and they were planning to use a non-parent daycare uh, to find out really how they perceived the support that they had from the father. Uh, They were mostly married. This is very much a a white, married, highly educated population. And by three months, 58% were providing human milk exclusively. So the results are definitely tailored to a certain demographic, but I think there are some interesting things that have come of it. Um, the babies in, in general enter daycare somewhere between seven and 12 weeks postpartum. So first of all, most of the mothers who entered the study felt like breastfeeding was just their responsibility, um, that it wasn't something that was shared. Uh, they weren't sure, they weren't even sure like what's the best way for their partners to support them. So I think that in and of itself 
is a really interesting concept that when people decide that they're going to breastfeed or lactate, that it's it's like their their decision. They're the pregnant people. They're the pregnant person, and they're just going to make this decision, right? As opposed to like you know the partner coming, and then they both kind of decide together how this is going to work. So I see that relationship more in like my same sex partners where you know you have two people who identify as women one is going to lactate and help the person who's who's going to birth the child um, and then that person's going to decide if they're going to lactate so it, like there's a much more shared decision but if it's male female in traditional roles it seems like many the mothers in the study felt like no this is like this is my wheelhouse this is my circus this is my rodeo whatever you want to call it and uh, the father is going to be along for the ride and we're going to see, you know, how much he participates. So that's, that's in itself interesting, something that we need to talk about prenatally. Well, so- and I, I think also it's a little bit related to, you know, the fact that they don't know how their partner is going to help might also be a little bit of a reflection of they have no idea what they're getting themselves into, right? Like I had a patient today who said to me, you know, I really didn't give any thought to breastfeeding before I delivered. It didn't occur to me that I might have trouble. I didn't educate myself. And, and, you know, it's tied to that too. Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, so factors that they found contributed to father engagement, um, were number one, open communication. So these are the results of the survey. Um, they felt that if they could talk to the father about how that father, how the, the parent could support her, such as like doing things like washing pump parts or giving a bottle at times when she's pumping, that seemed to help like their sense of support. If they do things like uh, just help with feeding, like when the baby cries, change a diaper, bring the baby to the mother to feed, set up the pillows, get the water, get the snacks, get the burp break, you know, all those things like really anticipating, right? Like if you're helping someone change a tire, you get the tools, you hand them to the person, you know, you don't just like stand there and email, you know, you actually like help them. I love that analogy. <laughs> and so it's like being kind, you know, um, and then helping with household tasks. Like, so I mentioned cleaning pump parts, but things like, you know, helping destroy the milk, um, checking the dates on the milk that's in the refrigerator, cleaning the house, all the things, doing the laundry, you know, all those sorts of things. And then having, like, if they had a sense of shared investment in breastfeeding, um, they, they definitely felt more supported. So if the, if the father came to like the prenatal breastfeeding classes, if they came um, to see the lactation consultant or the breastfeeding medicine specialist, if they were in, like engaged in learning, you know, how sometimes you have the fam, you have the dyad together, you have the the, uh, the partner in there, you know, with the, with the breastfeeding parent and uh, the partner like stands over you and watches what you do in flash. And the other one's like, you know, looking at their phone or, you know, not, or not even like thinking, not even holding the baby. Like, Sometimes they leave the room. They're like, Oh, I'm going to, I was like, wait, 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 no, come back here. Sit. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. There's definitely a sense there. Right. And if they leave the room, that's a good time to ask the parent, like, how do you feel partner support is going um, and then, uh, and then, uh, uh, the last category is sort of like reinforcing the mother's breastfeeding self-efficacy. So rather than like, if times are rough, rather than saying, oh, just get formula, we just need to, you know, fed is best kind of thing. Like that's not necessarily as supportive. Um, so areas that they felt they needed improvement in breastfeeding support, uh, was, were like, for example, feeling like the burden of breastfeeding shouldn't be on their shoulders. Like the father should be participating in the feeding responsibilities. So uh, this was an interesting comment. Um, This is a quote. I feel like a lot of the weight is on me. And I guess I definitely made that decision on my own. And he just had to be okay with it, especially since he only feeds her if I give him a bottle every once in a while. So it's not always... So he's kind of just there. I thought that was interesting. It was kind of funny when his grandfather asked us if she's bottle fed or breastfed. And I told him breastfed. And he said to my partner, oh, that means you're lucky. You don't have to do any work, which was. I've heard that before. Yes, it's terrible, right? And then some felt like their partners had different reasons for feeding. So one example was, you know, one person who felt like, her partner really was interested in breastfeeding because it saved money. And that wasn't her goal. 
So you can imagine that that could be really difficult if suddenly you're buying pillows and herbs and all these things that cost money, you know, then it's like, they may not feel like it's even worth breastfeeding. Um, some felt like the fathers had wanted nothing to do with feeding until they actually had the opportunity to give a bottle. Like that's how they saw their role in infant feeding. And, um, and then a lot of moms felt like it was their decision um, to breastfeed. It wasn't the father's. And there was some conversation about like about that. So one quote was, um, I think it was kind of my body. It was kind of my decision. And he was going to support either way. And another mother said, I think he was just kind of, I mean, he was going to help with her if he wanted to or not. I was, I was going to make him help. Um, and then another said, I think he, the infant's father, played the you're the mom role. You're, you, you probably know what's right and I'll support whatever decision you make. Um, so they, you know, it's, that's such an interesting dynamic, you know, it's, you know, our, like we hear this all the time now about vaccines, right? My body, my decision, you know, so then <laughs> it goes into breastfeeding too. Um, so then like I've had situations where the mother really didn't want to breastfeed, but the father really wanted them to. And dad's mom is a lolly to the leader or a lactation consultant, and they feel really pressured to do this. And I've even seen it recently with a grandfather who was pressuring, um, you know, the father of the mother, you know, the grandfather of the child really wanted this baby breastfed for health reasons and was pressuring his daughter, you know, to mm -hmm. get breast milk. So then, you know, but then on the other hand, they're really supportive too, right? So, um, but some of the moms felt that the fathers had no interest and they remained really uninvolved. One mom said that she read so much about breastfeeding and took a class that the, the father said, like, you've got this, you know it all. I don't need to learn anything because you're the expert, um, which really wasn't very comforting to her. Um, and, then, and then another common theme was that a lot of moms communicated that the dads didn't appreciate how challenging it was. And they said, that's natural. Like, what's a big deal? So one quote was, I mean, he went to the breastfeeding class, but the only reason he went to the class is because I asked him to go, okay, which is great. But he did express that he felt like it was a waste of time, right? It's natural. Why do you need to take a class? Um, so that's interesting. <laughs> Uh, and then some moms felt that they could have been more encouraged by their partners. Uh, one person said, and I think if my husband would have been more, if he would have been more eager to push breastfeeding, I think I might've tried harder, but he just wanted him fed. He just wanted him healthy and he didn't want to hear him crying. So whatever that needed to be done was going to be done. So I think maybe more. So if he asked me to try more, I think that kind of would have been a huge influence. So that, I mean, I think, you know, again, it's that pressure, like, do you pressure this person, not knowing how it feels to be in that situation. And then they mentioned, uh, many of the moms felt like having partner support wasn't really enough for them anyway, that they needed support from like their mothers, other family members, from friends, and uh, that they needed oftentimes just other resources in the community, just even like, how do I find a pump? You know, I need a video on fitting my flange, my flanges, things like that. And some hoped that the fathers would actually help to them to find these resources. Um, so, yeah, I just think that, you know, in reading this, I realized that we in breastfeeding medicine or lactation consultants who are listening to this podcast could really be thinking more about this when we do see uh, individuals who are lactating and their partners and talk about the kind of support that people need. Apparently there is a model out there that was published in 2014 by three authors, Sharif, Panton, and Hall. And uh, this model of support has like a five-point approach, which is parental knowledge about breastfeeding. So, you know, making sure they take a class, positive attitude to breastfeeding, involvement in the decision-making process, practical support, and emotional support. So then I think about like, you know, these situations again that we have in our office, like, you know, asking these moms who have like low volumes and the baby's not latching, you know, we see them all the time. They're coming in with these pumped volumes and I'll say, well, who's keeping track of the volumes, you know, and if it's the mother on her phone and she's like holding the baby and scrolling through her phone, I'm like, does he know how to use that app? Like, could he help, you know, do these things? Um, or sometimes it is them, right? But we could like, 
maybe start pointing out areas that they could be helping with uh, and maybe even sort of mediate some conversations between the two of them just to say, do you guys have any questions about like the co-parenting thing when it comes to feeding? I haven't done that in the past. And I think maybe and I will start doing that now. Like, because I always ask, do you have any questions about going back to work? Do you have any questions about this? Do you have any, you know, I give them this screening for depression, anxiety. And I should ask, do you have any questions about how to share these responsibilities? Like that might be a good way to help to. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that (laughs) one of the things that took me, a long time to learn is if your husband is doing something to help in the house or with the kids, he is not doing it wrong. Like he is helping, he can do it his way. Like, I don't need to tell him how to do it. That's just demoralizing. And so when I'm talking to new couples, I often say like, you didn't know your relationship was changing from this, like, oh, let's have life together to 24 seven team building. And, you know, this is really exhausting. I often try to like, you know, if people are doing some pumping, I'll say like, you know, that middle of the night pump, don't breastfeed and pump, just pump. Your partner gives a bottle. You both get back to bed in 20 minutes. It's so much faster than doing triple feeding at that time of night. The other one that I find is really fun and impactful is when you see people sometimes late in the hospital stay if they're C-section or definitely if you see them in the first week of clinic, the complaint is so often, oh, they fall asleep. And then like, I'm like, okay, dad, make a lobster claw with your hand, put it here on the back of the breast. When the baby starts nibbling, press a little and watch how this slows down the jaw and the, you know, the baby's all gulp, 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 and doesn't fall asleep. And I'm like, you're helping with breastfeeding. And then I'm like, give me five. And like, literally I give him five. <laughs> And he's like, I'm helping. It's super fun. Right. That's excellent. Yeah. And also like helping, I think, uh, taking a look at support. So I use the, you know, breastfeeding pillows in my office. And then oftentimes they need something underneath. So I'll say now, this is how high, this is like the kind of support you need. Can you just like help ergonomically at home to make sure that, you know, she has this level for it because otherwise, because, you know, so often that doesn't hurt as much in the office and they go home and it hurts. And it's probably just because they're just not holding that baby closely, you know? Oh yeah. I love seeing the partners who are like stacking all the pillows and grabbing the water bottle. I often tell people like, you know, when you sit down to breastfeed and your oxytocin release, it makes you thirsty. And so like, if your partner always grabs you a drink or I like to, cause I'm a pediatrician, I like to prescribe ice cream. I'm like, Ice cream sandwiches are a great thing to bring somebody who's breastfeeding. They've got calcium, they're handheld. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's, well, that's like a Wisconsin recommendation. I mean, yeah. ice cream is a health Everybody's food. always happy when you prescribe popsicles or ice cream. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, but sometimes I do find it interesting how sometimes the decision to continue breastfeeding is oftentimes made by the dad like sometimes I feel like when the going gets tough there ends up being you know the dad is like okay I'm making a decision we're going to stop this craziness this is just terrible so I had a mother who came in who spoke a different language so she was clearly you know not as advantaged in our community as he was and he said um you know, we're going to, um, we're going to stop. So this is a baby that wasn't transferred well. So then she was having to pump and bottle feed oftentimes. And, uh, and it was tiring and she didn't like it. And so he said, you know what, I, I read all about the difference between formula, but feeding and breastfeeding. And I've decided that, um, the baby's fine with formula. And it was the middle of like cold and flu season before COVID. And I just said, um, do you want to talk about the differences? And he said, sure, I'll, you know, listen to your perspective. And this is a very highly educated family. And I said, well, first of all, there's an impact on IQ. And then I also talked about, you know, how the, how the mother's health makes a difference, right? Like the reduced risk of like diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and all these things. And he's like, oh, okay, that changes things. And then he, you know, and then I actually just got a, um, I got a message from the mother who said, 
thank you so much for the support. I, um, you know, she, you know, made it, I guess it was during COVID because it, it's been like 14 months. And uh, she said, I made it to 14 months. I'm so happy for your support and blah, 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 you know, and just having that conversation, um, you know, fortunately he was there to have that conversation. So sometimes we don't know why our moms are making decisions, but I wonder how often, you know, making a decision to wean, it may not really be their decision. It may be that it's, it may have to do with some pressure from the other parent who just wants everyone to be happy. And, th- and that's kind of what happens all the time, right? People are like, I was, you know, my mom called, my sister called, everyone's saying, just get formula and just drop it. Your baby's going to be fine. You were formula fed, blah, blah, It's the same kind of thing, you know? Well, like, and I think, you know, there's certainly, it's hard to watch your partner suffering. And if they're really, you know, especially I find people who are struggling with super low volumes and, you know, helping to have that outside perspective because you're just, you're in the tunnel of I'm doing the things, I'm doing the things, I'm doing the things. And sometimes it is helpful for the partner to say, you know, you're suffering and it's not getting better. It's been going on for a long time. And so having that person there invested, no matter what the outcome is, is valuable. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, there are times that I, you know, I'm sure you do too. We say, you know, that you, yeah, don't, don't. You've done it all. You've done and it all. And it's time it's, to like really move on with life and to yeah. be here. You're using that time towards your baby, no matter what, let's use it a different way. Let's let yeah. you start to babble or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Just really connect. Yeah. 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 I think that there's, uh, yeah. Um, that was a really interesting article. I liked it. Yeah. I think that, um, I also want to just have more information available for partners. I know LHE years ago used to do like the pamphlets for dads. And I think like some WIC, some uh, WIC agencies and also some state uh, public health departments have good information to hand out to parents and I mean, to the partner and to grandparents and um, recognizing that's all that, you know, that material is really important. And I feel like I need to personally beef up on that um, to provide that information for people. Yeah, I think it's, It's really interesting. I do find that a lot of people take their partners with them to the breastfeeding class. And, you know, it goes to my, like, I have a whole issue about how those classes are often taught as though everything is going to go perfectly. It's sort of like if they just said, oh, you're going to have a vaginal delivery. And then, you know, when that failed, they'd be like, oh, there's this thing called cesarean. Um, But you know, thinking about how that person can be responsible for keeping track of the, you know, how often the feeding is or the the stools the first few days to help being mindful of those yellow flags and the red flags might be a great way to incorporate them. Yes. I don't know, thinking through all those different, sometimes it's so amazing. People come back and they're like, I couldn't get the tube, you know, they're doing like an SNS. I couldn't get the tube in to do the tube feeding at the breast, but he is great at it. I've even had families like where the mom's like, I couldn't hand express, but he's great at it. I'm like, awesome. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Or the partner gets the plug out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely yeah. happens. Definitely. And I'm always impressed that they share that with me too. Oh my gosh. It is amazing what people will tell you if you ask them or oh, sometimes even oh. if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing when it's your parent. It's another thing when it's your child. (laughs) We'll go there. Yeah. Um, So, um, okay. So do you want to move on and talk about? uh, Yeah, I have a protocol that, um, so there is the new ABM protocol, clinical protocol number 35, supporting breastfeeding during maternal and child hospitalization. Um, and the first author was Melissa Bartik and a bunch of other wonderful um, ABM people who worked on this protocol. And it really, it talks about lactating parents or breastfeeding infants and children may require hospitalization for medical or surgical reasons at birth or later in a child's life. And lactating parents may sometimes require psychiatric hospitalization. Unfortunately, this can result in disruption of breastfeeding and unintended weaning. And so they've created this protocol, which outlines the recommended care for the hospitalized lactating dyad and serves to set the standard to implement model policies. Um, You know, I think most of the people listening to this podcast will understand why this 
policy is so important. And so I'm going to just summarize it briefly and say that it is really, there's a lot in here and it'll, it'll be worth digging in and sort of seeing the specifics. Um, but just briefly, they point out that, you know, having a baby or young child in an inpatient adult medical or surgical unit, an operative area and an adult ICU can pr prompt concern for the child's safety and require and raise questions about hospital liability, um, managing breastfeeding with respect to medications, procedures, and fluids may require special attention. And um, you may find that staff outside of obstetric, pediatric, and neonatal units have limited experience caring for lactating mothers and limited knowledge of physiology and management. And they may not understand the short and long-term risks of disrupting lactation. So they, the authors mentioned that there are several other ABM protocols that are intertwined with this one that may be useful to reference, including the model maternity policy to support breastfeeding, um, which is number seven, number 15, analgesia and anesthesia for the breastfeeding mother, number 25 on pre-procedural fasting for the breastfeeding infant, and number 31, radiology and nuclear medicine for the breastfeeding mother. Um, they go into a basic review. They have a really nice short summary of that little paragraph that's in the beginning of like every breastfeeding publication everywhere that's like the reasons why, you know, the health benefits of breastfeeding. And then in addition, a nice basic review of lactation physiology, because it's important as a basis for understanding the management of the hospitalized lactating um, parent and breastfeeding child. And they point out and stress the importance of rooming in to ensure adequate milk removal to continue production. Um, and they also remind us that sudden interruption of breastfeeding due to mother-infant separation can cause breast discomfort and engorgement. Using a breast pump um, is of course an important tool, but it is a risk factor for decreased production as well as mastitis. And so then there are a whole host of recommendations. The first of which is, of course, create a policy to support the lactating parent and breastfeeding child. And then they say any institution admitting women of childbearing age or children greater than two years of age should have such a policy in place. A facility should have a written policy about breastfeeding management in the hospitalized lactating mother or breastfeeding child wherever they are hospitalized outside of a maternity or neonatal ward. Um, they go into this. Do they talk about like having an automatic referral to lactation? Um, there is further down and a whole bunch of different things about elements of support, which include not just the staff, but also the equipment. And I, of course, think of like breast pumps, but, you know, they point out that if you're going to have rooming in of a child with an admitted mother in a facility that doesn't normally have pediatric patients, they might not have a bassinet or a crib. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a car seat is not an appropriate place for an infant to sleep um, for safety reasons. And so they talk about safe sleep. They talk about keeping um, parents and um, children together. They go into evidence-based guidelines for milk expression and storage and point out the direct breastfeeding is preferable for some of the reasons I mentioned before. There are recommendations on the frequency of milk expression, specifically exclusively breastfed infants less than six months will typically nurse eight to 12 times, whereas six to 12 month olds, it may be closer to six times and after 12 months, three to four times per 24 hours. And they point out that having guidelines of a normal range of volumes for goals of milk expression is important. So if, you know, we think typically of 700 to 980 milliliters or 25 to 35 ounces per 24 hours by day 10 to 14 postpartum, of course, you know, some people increase more slowly, particularly if they had a smaller baby to start with. And if you have twins, you're going to need twice as much milk. Um, they talk about labeling of expressed milk, and then they go into support of the child of the lactating mother. So 
we call this custodial care in our postpartum unit when a um, infant is discharged, but the mom needs to stay. So often we think in the postpartum arena of, you know, a mom being able to room in when she, the baby's on phototherapy and she has been discharged um, because her insurance is only going to cover a certain number of nights. But occasionally we have the opposite where a mom is hospitalized and the baby is fine, but we want to keep the baby there with the, the mother. And so um, in our institution, we have a policy where there must be an additional caretaker who's staying with the baby if the mom is ill, because she may be able to feed the baby, but not have the strength to take care of them the rest of the time. And so thinking through what that's going to look like. Yeah, we have uh, the same thing, you know, when the mother's not able to, there has to be another adult there to Mm-hmm. They talk about the use of evidence-based safety recommendations for medications, resources for that, and then specifically about radiological um, diagnostic agents. Um, they make the point that, as we know, IV iodinated contrast and gadolinium do not require interruption of breastfeeding or discarding of expressed milk. And in In reading this, I thought, you know, a large number of outpatient studies are done in hospitals. And so improving the policies around this for the hospitalized patients will likely also spill over to people getting outpatient studies. They make the important point that is often forgotten that the gestation, when we're thinking about medication safety, the gestational age of the infant and the amount of or proportion of breast milk in the infant's diet have an impact as well as the specific medication. Um, And they talk about additional fluid needs that lactating mothers may have, um, ensuring the infants remain in acceptable locations. And they talk about safety of infants in medical surgical units, um, which unless there's a specific infection control protocol related to a maternal infection should be fine as opposed to an adult ICU. Um, where there may be more concerns from other equipment or needing to get adequate vital signs and such. They talk for a while about infection control and prevention and specifically say breastfeeding may continue with respiratory hygiene and hand hygiene with SARS-CoV-2. And then they talk about scheduled procedures, trying to think through the amount of time that there will be separation, um, considering incision placement relative to lactating breasts, artificial grafts, ICU management, supporting the unconscious lactating mother immediately postpartum. Um, I recently had someone reach out to me about a mom who was going to have electroconvulsive therapy and, you know, the baby doesn't take a bottle and could I help with that? And I was like, you know, that procedure actually only takes 10 minutes and the anesthesia wears off after an hour. Let's rethink why the baby needs a bottle. Um, Then they have a section on supporting the lactating mother admitted to inpatient psychiatry. Sorry. They uh, have a section on supporting the mother being admitted to inpatient psychiatry and talk about uh, written policy for that. Um, and then they go into support of the mother whose child is hospitalized. So the other side of the coin um, and talking about if the baby were in the ICU, if they were on respiratory support, infants with congenital diseases, um, lactation support, when children are having surgery. They talk about children needing strict fluid balance or, you know, monitoring of ins and outs and using weighted feeds um, because sometimes people get a little bit concerned about not knowing exactly how much the child is getting and then promoting shared decision-making. So, you know, sometimes due to illness, the difficult decision about discontinuing, discontinuing breastfeeding, um, comes up and depending on, you know, the feeling of the family and the medical condition, having support to decide what to do is really important. And then lastly, they mention areas for future research and basically state little has been published on this topic, 
And so public accounts of experiences would be welcome, including sample policies and case series. So if anybody has a great policy, I would love to hear about it. And then the only other thing that I've been thinking about lately is um, I'm hoping that we will do more in the future in terms of a policy um, related to lactation with infant loss. Yeah. And I think that is tied to this topic because it often is around hospitalization. And so um, I find this to be a really useful protocol. And um, for those people who want to make sure their hospital has a policy, there's a ton of detail to go into and find the key stakeholders and yeah, roll up our sleeves again. I think this is a really good policy. I think this is a really good protocol because um, it actually is fodder for a policy, right? Because when you're thinking of a policy, you want to think about like, what are all the things that we have to address in our policy? In or, and then from, and oftentimes hospitals will take the policy and then make a protocol um, that's specific, like, you know, how all this is going to get supported. And really you have it right there. You know, you just need to, um, you know, depending on the services that the hospital has, it's a, it's a really um, excellent protocol for just, uh, just a working draft, you know, to, to go from. Yeah. And I glossed over a few things, like there was a part on considering transport when people are separated. So it's definitely worth looking at for people who are working in the hospital setting. Yes. Yes. And I know transport, um, like for in Wisconsin, and I'm sure this happens in other places too, when babies are transported from like level two nurseries to our NICUs, the mom is oftentimes like four or five hours away. And so NICUs sometimes have to figure out like, how can they support that lactating parent? Well, you really want that milk, right? For the health of the baby, but also supporting that parent and that family before they can come, before they can get down there. It's important too. There's so many different aspects to it. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We really need a repository for hospital policies because that's oftentimes something we see on the IABLE listserv. It's like, does anyone have a policy for this, this? So absolutely. And I think that's so interesting that in the, you know, they were like, it would be great if people would, you know, publish accounts and experiences. Cause I do feel like every few years I see requests for like, who's got a donor milk policy? Who's got a this? Who's got a that? And everybody's out reinventing the wheel. Right. Right. Yeah. The exactly. other thing that I didn't see in here that I really um, have been thinking a lot about is is sort of about the qualifications of people who are taking care of of um, hospitalized, particularly older children. Because where I am now, we have wonderful lactation consultants in the postpartum area, and they were mostly all postpartum nurses who went on to get more training in lactation, but have not had experience with older children. And so I find that sometimes when they get consulted to go see sick children on the med surge ward that are older, they're not as comfortable. And so um, I just think that's an area that probably could use some attention when people are making you know, plans on how you're going to support those families with older kids. And then sometimes too, I mean, sometimes the the problems that they're asked to manage in the hospital are really beyond, you know, what they're able to do. So for example, um, I've had moms in the past who have been hospitalized for compression fractures during lactation. And the decision is made like, okay, you know, how, you know, they want, they want the mother to wean, of course, um, which I would argue is not really necessary, but, um, but then like, you know, do they need to wean or, and how can this be changed? Like, you know, we can actually support these women by having a physician come in and say, Hey, why not use, you know, a combined birth control pill, you know, and then give heparin to prevent a DVT or whatever. Um, so, I mean, there are some other things that we could actually be able to do. Um, but, and then sometimes there are these questions about like complicated meds and pumping and dumping and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's where sometimes physicians could. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting idea. I mean, in my electronic medical record, you know, if the patient is pregnant, you write a medication, you get a pop-up and, we, you know, sometimes have those for lactation, but the default 
I think should be after a patient in our system delivers, the computer should assume they're lactating until we tell them otherwise. We shouldn't have to go in there and tell it. And so I've been trying to change ours um, to default that way, mostly because I got sick of having to change it in all of my patients' clinic notes. But then I was like, you know, 90 plus percent of our patients are leaving the hospital planning on continuing lactation. Why, why would we not assume that was the case? And then having a part of our policy be if moms are lactating, admitted moms are lactating and their questions about, you know, their medications, there needs to be a system in place for them to, for people who don't normally take care of those patients to get more help. Because when I see the patient six weeks later and they say, oh, I was put on a, you know, a newer anticoagulant and told to pump and dump for six weeks. And I did. And now I want my baby to latch. Like that's just such a demoralizing story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, we actually, I don't know if she's still at her hospital, but we've had a pharmacologist who's been, you know, sort of the designated lactation pharmacologist. And uh, she was great about just keeping up and would always consult on these cases. And so it'd be nice to have it be designated as part of the, pol- part of the policy that there needs to be one, pharma- one pharmacist in the hospital who's knowledgeable, who's been trained. Ooh, and can we make a, like a certification for pharmacists to like yeah. show that they are um, like competent to. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, that would be awesome. Just put you on the spot during our podcast. Let's do one more thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of other things to consider. So um, I know that um, there are a few places that have breastfeeding medicine consult services, right? I think um so that would be, that could be something like as we have more breastfeeding medicine specialists and departments of breastfeeding medicine, we can have people, you know, come yeah. by and uh, just like palliative it's, care, insulin, the insulin team or something yeah. like that. I think there's an untapped uh, cohort of young women pharmacists that would be hungry for better education in this area. Cause my experience is that it is not robust. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that the pharmacists could become lactation consultants too, although they probably have to focus on medications, but because they're pharmacists, but, but it could be like, you know, like the firemen and the fire people in Brazil picking up the breast milk when they're not busy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. So many things to do. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that protocol. I have one last thing to talk about, um, which is like totally uh, separate, although still related breastfeeding. And this is a study entitled The Trajectory of Expressed Colostrum Volume in the First 48 Hours Postpartum, an Observational Study. And this was done in Japan uh, by, a group of, uh, by a group of researchers, a whole bunch of them. One is Aikuku Katu is the, is the first author. So the authors were really interested in just looking at the trajectory of expressed colostrum in the first 24 hours among mothers whose babies went to the NICU at a hospital called the National Kagawa Children's Hospital in Japan. And um, so meaning trajectory meaning like when does it increase? So like what's that rate of increase as well? So uh, they they took 105 moms, um, 50.5% were primips, the others were multips. Uh, about half of them had a vaginal delivery and about 73% of these moms had the babies going to the NICU because the babies were premature. Others had like medical problems. And what they did is they just had them hand express every three hours around the clock for 48 hours to see what their volumes were. And if they weren't very good at hand expressing or uncomfortable with it, the midwives did it for them or showed them and coached them how to do this. They didn't take out any pumps. And um, so What they found is that if they started hand expression within three hours after the baby was born, they on average were able to express zero to two ml um, at the three, you know, at the three hour mark, um, at their first pumping, at their first hand expression. On average, it was 0.4 ml. And if they waited three to six hours, it was more, it was about zero to six ml, um, on average about one ml that they could express at that first expression. And then they kind of tracked these people, you know, looking at the volumes every three hours. And um, they found that the milk volume did increase a little earlier if they started hand expressing before three hours. So 
they didn't really see a big like like exponential increase in the volume of hand of this classroom until about 30 to 36 hours. So more like 30 to 33 hours if they started expressing within three hours and between 33 and 36 hours if they started hand expressing um, between three to six hours. So it was just a little earlier that the milk increased, but we're talking like low volumes. We're talking about like super low volumes. In fact, what happened is that there was more, there was more classroom hand expressed in like the first 10 hours. And then from like 10 hours to about 30 hours, it went into like nothing. Like they were hardly able to express anything in, you know, less than an ML on average. And then it kind of, then it just shot up at like 30 to, you know, past 30 hours, which is, which I thought was amazing that it was that these volumes are so low. They didn't see any difference, whether they were uh, vaginal births or cesareans. And uh, they didn't see any difference with the gestational age of the infant. Um, and, uh, and they actually didn't even see any difference um, in terms of timing, if they were primers or multips, um, except that when the when the milk did start to increase, the rate of increase was a lot faster in the multips. So by that 30-hour mark, when they started to see this increase, multips, the volumes were much higher than the primips at that point. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It was really small volumes. And um, and then I wonder what's so fascinating. This is like my new favorite thing because I see this all the time in the hospital. You I'm mean always the lower, the lower yeah, I, I'm like going around helping people hand express and like it's like you know 20 hours postpartum and there's like oh I'm not really seeing anything and the I was googling the article while you were talking because I wanted to like see the graph because you know I'm visual and I saw that the in the abstract, the conclusion is the decline in expressed milk volume during the early postpartum period caused concern among mothers. And that is absolutely what I see. I had attributed some of the fact that people had less ability to hand express at the end of the first day to the significant amount of edema I see people having in their areola. But I would imagine that if these people were doing this every three hours, it probably cut down on that somewhat. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, then I wondered, okay, is it that maybe they didn't hand express well, maybe they would have more volume if they pumped? I don't know. I mean, I always think hand expression is going to be better in the first day. Oh, yeah. First day. For sure. Yeah. And the quality of hand expression. And then the question of like, what were the, what was the average body mass index in this population? Because, you know, clearly that is playing a huge role. And uh, we are actually going to be in April, uh, Dr. Paula Meyer is going to share some of her research with us during the IABLE research lecture, third week of uh, April, talking about the measuring of sodium potassium levels, sodium potassium ratios, um, in the first April 2022, for those of you who are April listening to this podcast yeah. in a different oh, year. Thank you. Yes, 2022. That's right. Thank you. Um, and she's got some really fascinating work looking at knowing that the sodium potassium ratio is associated with secretory activation. So as that ratio drops, the sodium level drops relative to potassium, um, there's an increase in production. And what she's finding not only does the sodium potassium ratio correlate with low volumes, you know, if it's high, also that um, the body mass index correlates. So if they have a high body mass index, it definitely is taking longer um, for that, uh, for the increase in the volumes. And so it kind of, you know, makes sense. Of course, we know about secretory activation, you have to get rid of you know, primarily progesterone, but also estrogen from the uterus, I mean, I'm sorry, from the placenta in order for milk to come in. And um, so then, uh, you know, obviously if it's taking longer, then, you know, perhaps the hormones are kind of hanging out in the breast, right? Um, Cause that's fat, cause it just goes into the fat stores. Um, so anyway, that's just, oh, that is so interesting. Yeah. This is kind of tangential to this because I guess I went from look at these low volumes and 
what about the body mass index? I have to look back. I don't think that there was not a correlation. They didn't look at any kind of correlation with body mass index, but but with all of these moms, I and mean, these are this is a fair number of moms, right? Um, with all these moms, I mean, they all follow the same trend of higher volumes the first nine hours, and then you know, from 10 hours to 30 hours, they were it's almost like a it's almost like a meniscus, you know, where it was higher, it goes down, mm-hmm. and it comes up again. I mean, I always assumed like, you know, if you help people to hand express prenatally, there is some colostrum there. And so in that first attempt to hand express in that first hour or three, like there's, you're getting out whatever is, has been hanging out in there. And then if you've been really successful, you're starting to hit that production. When I think about, you know, the way that we teach people in the hospital about stomach size of infants and the data we have on, you know, the amount of the first meal, like, but when I actually, and I do this all the time, I'm helping people to hand express. I don't usually get five mLs in a meal when I'm trying like, you know, like that, that seems really generous yeah, seems um, like a lot. to me. So I don't find these actually to be that low based on what I experience in the real world, trying to, to help people. And it, it goes to this, you know, I, my new analogy, Anne is like, when I'm trying to explain to people, I'm like, you know how, if you're going to go on a road trip, you like fill up your tank before you get going. That's what the baby did before they came out. And they're like, good. For right, that first day. That. <laughs> that is, that is such a good analogy. I love that. I stole it from somebody. I can't take credit, but, um, <laughs> but, you but know, people understand that. I used to say cell phone battery, but this makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, I think another, another good study in this regard would be mothers who are breastfeeding during pregnancy, because, you know, clearly their body, their breasts go through changes, but I wonder about their volumes because I've oftentimes been surprised that individuals who were lactating during pregnancy, their babies still lose a fair amount of weight. Sometimes, but some of them you're like, oh, that poor baby, they're so stuffed. Yeah. Yeah. It it varies. But sometimes I do find that there's such a downregulation of milk production. Um, So yeah, that, but it would be cool to look at volumes, um, hand expressed volumes early as well. So yeah. It's so fun to talk to you. I always learn so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This was great. So we will um, meet again and um, stay safe, stay well. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.